This is Paul Nobles from Eat Reform, and I am here with Dr. Susan Kleiner. So Susan and I haven't been able to get together because of the holiday, and so we have a, a few ideas, and frankly, we've been talking for about 30 to 35 minutes because we're just catching up with all the cool things that, um, you know, we've been hearing, you know, in the fitness world and um, health and wellness and so uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about Setpoint and kind of some of the, the misinterpretations of Setpoint because, you know, when people hear about Setpoint theory, that they often look at it as a thing that is saying that they don't have a lot of control over body composition or weight loss or things of that nature. And so, Susan, why don't you give kind of a brief summary of when the whole set point theory started to happen and then maybe we can then move into some of the more recent information. So I, I thanks Paul, it's always great to be here. Um, I, you know, I have to be honest, I can't recall the first publication dates. I believe that it started to be talked about as a thing kind of in the 1990s. And um, so the research probably was going on for a decade before, um, when, until things kind of come to the fore. The idea of Setpoint in a very basic, fundamental way is that your body likes to be at a certain body weight. And whatever, you, that you will hover around that weight. You you know, in a healthy person that exercises regularly and eats well, um, you will typically vary from that set point by only a handful of pounds, five pounds, 10 pounds max. You will go up, you will go down, you will ultimately come back to that basic weight range within a couple of pounds. And, and that it's hard to make your body shift away from that, that it has a, uh, you know, it's not, it's not in your genes, it is how the code is translated and the, the um, hormones that are produced that respond to uh, your fat mass and your lean body mass and the fuel coming in, and the energy deficit that you experience, whether it is day-to-day -day or within day, that your body will, will drive you to maintain within a certain set point range. And so that is pretty defeating to people who are trying to lose weight or gain weight. And we know, you know, we have a lot more people trying to lose weight, but I work with people who I call hard gainers. And it is really hard for them to gain weight. And, and it takes a huge effort on both sides. And so the set point theory, um, which has never been proven, um, had this concept. But at the core was this idea that it was really your body's response to being comfortable, so to speak, uh, most comfortable at a certain perhaps percent body fat um, and uh, energy availability. 
and the the concept of set point theory um, is, I would say, widely accepted within the scientific community. And and so what I really want to kind of delve into is if you're obese, right? How you should view set point theory, and then maybe the conditions or you know even anecdotally, um, just some ideas of how someone becomes obese and then, you know, what happens for them to get back to a right. Because I think that set point theory, if, if you're fit, you've been fit your whole life, you're five, seven, you know, 155 pounds, right? Moving up five or 10 pounds, no big deal. But if you're listening to something related to set point theory, you're 275 pounds, 5'2 as a female, you're feeling like, oh my goodness, you know, um, this is horrible information. I do not want to hear this, right? So talk about that a little bit, and then we'll kind of get into some of the newer stuff that we were talking about before. Um, the yeah, so, so the things that we've learned is, yes, your body can become somewhat conditioned to the weight that you're at, um, but this is not inevitable. You're not destined to always be at this higher weight level. You, um, if, if you desire to change, then it, it is an energy equation to get your body to lose weight. But the combination of exercise and weight loss and, 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 and food decrease, energy decrease from food, is a a more powerful combination than just fasting, for instance, um, because for a number of reasons. One of the things that influences your set point is the amount of lean body mass, the amount of muscle that you have. And so when you just reduce calories massively by calorie intake and create these enormous energy deficits, you will drop more muscle. You will continue to lose more muscle. And people who are 100 pounds overweight have high levels of lean body mass because they're carrying around an extra 100 pounds all day long. You're doing progressive resistance training every time you stand up. And so, so to lose that because you are only using food to create your calorie deficit makes it harder to get away from if your body has quote unquote set a point at a higher level, because now the, your metabolism is really slowing down because you're losing muscle mass. On the other hand, um, when you create a calorie deficit from exercising, then you are increasing during that exercise time, your metabolism, everything that you can do to keep all of these systems that are required to manufacture enzymes and hormones and proteins and, and connective tissues and all the things that our body needs biochemically and physiologically to exercise and repair and recover, those help create a greater deficit and, and yet your body is working harder in response to that exercise rather than slowing down because it doesn't you're not feeding it and so the more you can fight against 
the slowing to push you back to the set point is makes a big difference. And the and, and this is what we're going to get to fueling yourself and fully fueling your exercise and fueling your recovery, which so many people don't do, is going, if you don't do that, if you see your exercise time as your weight loss opportunity, rather than your opportunity to get healthy and fit and stronger and healthier in mind and body and feel better all day long, and so if you see that as the goal of your activity, you will fuel that activity so you can maximize it. And you will fuel your recovery so you can maximize the rest of your day as well as your exercise tomorrow. When you do that, you also push back against the set point concept. And we'll right. talk so about why. Yeah. Just interrupt for just a second because I think that well, one, what you're basically describing is the basis for you to perform, right? Is that the way that people want to do it is this one, I'm going to lose 100 pounds as fast as possible. Well, you know, the, the, the one lesson that we definitely all know related to The Biggest Loser was that metabolic rate decreases so much when you do that. And then it's, it, it, it has a a lasting effect years after mm -hmm. and you may never actually get that recovery back right so the idea of viewing it almost you know the way that I always kind of did it in live presentations was I would create a wave on the board right and I would point out that you know the performance goes up and then we the wave comes down and the performance goes up and then the wave comes down and so people early on, not so much lately, but they would ask me, what's the one thing that you would say to someone? And I was like, it took me two years to lose over 105 pounds. If I could do it again, I would have done it over 10 years, <laughs> right? Because when we look at metabolism and, and, and you hit on two things, you, well, three things. First of all, when you exercise, the goal is to get better at exercise. That's real simple, right? Um, but secondly, the um, when you are obese, as an example, people often think that they have a slow metabolism. Incorrect. You, if if you're overeating, um, your metabolism is actually high, right? Um, it's just you can't out eat a, a metabolism, right. Right. right? And then the other piece that almost no one knows is that resistance training, especially as it relates to what you were talking about with hard gainers, um, and, and I've heard, you know, I can't remember who said it at this time, but, but you know, uh, he was asked, you know, what they should eat, you know, to you know, gain weight. And he said, well, how much do you weigh? And he says 170. I said, well, get to 200 and then talk to me. Right. <laughs> because, because it's just the act of weighing more that will put muscle. Now, of course you need to add in resistance training and things of that nature, but over time that actually ends up being positive. And I think that this is what we're really having here 
is a discussion related to longevity of life, mm-hmm. right? Because we know that as we age, that it's, it's more difficult to hold on to muscle, right? So one of the interesting things that, that we see, and once again, this is anecdotal, but, but if you have any science that, that you have off of the top of the brain, but one of the things that we see is that if you can do things a little bit slower and hold on to muscle mass, that your set point might actually change a little bit, right? And especially as it relates to, um, you know, I just think back to some of my numbers where my lean mass, you know, when I first started off was like 126 pounds. My lean mass right now is like 162, you know? Right. So to think, Think that that does not have an effect on set point would be incorrect that it, you know the numbers are going to change and when you look at what you're trying to do as it relates to weight loss fat loss you're trying to hold on to muscle and lean mass because that is like holding on to the engine mm-hmm. right you're holding on to that metabolic engine that works in your favor and so when you challenge you know um when you get to these big huge deficits and you do all these drastic things ultimately you're working against kind of that longevity and 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 what what i think ends up happening for people is that the ends justify the means and they really don't they don't justify the means. Almost no one gets there that way. And then, you know, when you look at the long-term damage effect, then we have kind of just this, this big negative. And so we do try to keep these short. These are just such interesting topics that it's hard to not make them a little bit longer. But why don't you go into some of what we were talking about with liver glycogen because I think that that's an interesting it's fascinating and it it it's so relevant to today and it's about carbohydrate which is what makes it so relevant and and this idea of recovery and people thinking of their exercise as their weight loss opportunity and so they're not fueling their exercise and they're not fueling their recovery so it's this Research that's been ongoing that has finally sort of accumulated to a point where, as I said, we we thought that set point is mostly controlled by fat mass and your lean body mass, but that your fat mass, that that it it wants to regain back to where it was because your fat, fat is not dormant on your body. It is highly active and it is a highly active hormonal tissue the largest tissue in your body pumping out hormones. And those hormones all have to do with energy metabolism and appetite and and satiation and and all this stuff and responds a lot to stress and, and all those things. Well, this study shows that it is highly likely that the, the carbohydrates stored in our liver. So we don't, we have a, compared to the thousands of calories, tens of thousands of calories that we store on our body in fat. Even a lean person has probably 40,000 calories that they store in fat. We store a minuscule amount of calories as carbohydrate, somewhere from 1,200 to maybe 3,000 when we're really loaded up. 
and we predominantly store carbohydrate in our muscles and in our liver. Well, our muscle is clearly the fuel for exercise. Why do we store it in the liver? Well, so the liver storage is very sort of primal and it is protective and it is the when we think about the brain uses glucose or carbohydrate as its primary fuel source, that storage, when we're not able to get food in, comes from liver glycogen. And so the body is extremely sensitive to the amount of glycogen in the liver. And when we train, we do use, when we train hard, when we do high intensity exercise, we are we are using external sources of carbohydrate, whatever's floating around in the bloodstream from what we've eaten or what we've taken as a, as a sports nutrition beverage or, or fuel prior and during, to, during exercise. We are also using our stored glycogen in predominantly our muscle, but we will go to the liver pretty quickly when we reduce the muscle glycogen levels low enough. And so... So, we, and, and it, it continuously comes out of the liver as well because we're fueling our brain while we're exercising, et cetera. And so in elite athletes, we find that when liver glycogen lowers, they, they, are, they manage their appetites and balance their energy intake because they likely consume plenty of carbohydrate to recover both their muscle and liver glycogen after exercise. But in average people, we don't quite as well manage our recovery of our liver glycogen and it drives us to eat more. It drives, we get this um, hormonal response of leptin, which, it, which increases appetite. We, we are actually at it lowers leptin. There's a, a negative feedback loop where when muscle, liver glycogen is low, leptin levels are also low and appetite increases. And so we, we have a drive to eat and they've really looked at, is that energy deficit or is it must, uh, liver glycogen deficit? And it associates, it, it zeroes in on liver glycogen. So, so we eat more, even though we're exercising, we don't come to balance. And that could be easily part of what drives this set point theory. And it's, an, it's as I said, it's not brand new, it's relatively new data that we've got now pointing toward that. It, is, it has holes in it. There are questions that are unanswered, things that are like, well, why, why does X happen and not Y? And we don't, we don't know yet. Or why does this happen? Again, why not in elite athletes? People who exercise a lot, really hard, seem to maintain body weight um, better and, and appetite control and energy consumption better than people who are more the everyday exerciser. And so, so it is this idea of, of there's something to do with muscle glycogen. And as a practitioner, I know 
that people restrict their carbohydrate, the average person, whereas my elite athletes pretty much don't do that anymore. It was maybe a small period of time that some of them were. We know how important carbohydrate is if you want to win, and so they're not doing it. They certainly use carbs to pre-fuel, to fuel their exercise, and absolutely to recover. And I think that recovery window of carbohydrate where people have shifted to protein and they're not using carbs, I think, even though I can't back this up with evidence, we are nowhere near this far along in the data yet, but as a practitioner, it leads me right to that story of people thinking, oh, this is my window to not eat at all after exercise because I've created this deficit, which we all know is defeatist because if you add fueling to your recovery time, you increase your energy burn, but also you, you maximize your recovery to train hard again, but you recover your, your, your liver glycogen. And that may help you control your appetite for the rest of the day because so many of us say on the days that we exercise, we are so much more hungry and it isn't just the energy deficit that explains that appetite increase. We think it's liver glycogen deficit. So I normally give you the last word because these are Sundays with Susan, but I'm going to take the last word on this one because I think this is something that people don't understand about Eat to Perform that I believe is a big part of who we are and why we talk about what we talk about and why it's important for people to understand. I don't view people's issues, whether they're lean, whether they're obese or whatever, as a calorie issue. Fundamentally, I just do not believe that. And I don't, uh, I've not seen that to be fact. I've seen that 90% of what you want to do can be accomplished through performance. Now, performance is relative, similar to what Susan was saying that, you know, there's a lot that we don't know related to, you know, athletes that are elite compared to people that are just walking, right? Um, but it always amazes me how much in private conversations, Susan and I are talking, how walking is such a big part of our life, right? And just these exercises that many of you probably don't even view. I mean, one of the great things about the Fitbits and the Apple Watches and stuff, people are more conscious of walking than they would have been in the past. But I want to get back to my main point is that the, the driving force behind each perform is that 90% of whatever solution that you're looking for is based in what you do and how long you can do it as you live, right? So right now you acutely think I'm 30 pounds overweight, but the reality is whatever you feel about your body composition, you know, at the moment, when you look at the most elite athletes, when you look at the athletes in your gym that you admire that have body compositions that you would like to have. It's largely due to work, right? It, the more work you can do, the more recovery that you can do. And so when I started Eat to Perform, I started it because there was this culture of less that 
had just become so all-consuming to me that when I shifted and started to change my own personal logic, because it is logical, hey, look, you know, I've overeaten for a while here, so I have to deprive myself. You will get so much farther when you view performance as a much bigger piece and when you think to yourself that the ends justify the means of not working out or working out to where you're just viewing it from the, uh, the standpoint of fasting cardio or you're just all these things that really is not what exercise is meant to do. You're kind of missing the bigger picture of what is going to land you. What I can tell you for a fact is that if you are obese, one thing I've seen over and over and over and over again is that you can get a lot of weight loss with performance similar to what you would be able to do um, by depriving yourself food. In fact, I would argue that, and, and this is my personal experience, this is a personal experience that I've seen with hundreds of people who have done this exact same thing, that as your calories are at a higher point, you actually have more of road to go, right? You can get to where you want to go, even though it might seem like you would get somewhere faster, just starving yourself, that doesn't end up being the way it ends up being because what ends up happening is you have these moments where you just naturally cave to eating you naturally cave to sometimes binging food which is obviously a negative and then that derails you and so what ends up happening is is that people have a longer road with food than without food this is not making the case for not having you know there's hypercaloric ways of eating, and then there's hypocaloric ways of eating, right? Hypo would be less, you know? I'm not making the argument for never eating less. What I'm making the argument is, is that the eating less part should actually be less than the eating more part for almost everyone, right? Even if you have more fat to use, right? And I notice I did not say more fat to lose. I said more fat to use because fat is useful. Fat exists on your body for a reason, and you can mobilize your fat stores by doing more, right? And I get it that if you are, you know, I, I, please hear me, that I was morbidly obese, that I get what your struggle was, right? And, and Susan might not get in the same way that I do, that it hurts you to move, right? And that you have to come up with strategies that are different than other people. And certainly it's just easier to think that you can suck it up. And, and like I said, ends justify the means. It really doesn't because what's going to end up happening is you're gonna land in a place, right? And you nuclear bomb that place, and what I'm saying is, is rather than using kind of a nuclear bomb approach, just because you would like to get there as fast as possible to have the pain go away, slow it down. You will get there faster 
But when you get there, it won't be this area that was nuclear bombed. It will be this life of abundance that you just almost, I want you to visually think of it like this garden that you've created along the way that is now your new life, right? And the last thing I'm going to say before we, we kind of move on to, we try to do a few of these together, um, but the last thing I'm going to say is that it's hard, right? It's difficult, you know, major change, habits, routines, all these things. When I look back at what changed, the answer is everything, right? And so don't look at your challenge as, you know, I'm going to do this one thing, or I just need a meal plan, or if I just do boot camp, right? It's harder than that. It's, it's not one thing. It's 80 things, right? It ends up being 2,000 things over time. Right. And I want you to walk into the challenge thinking of it that way, because if you don't, you will underestimate the challenge and you will underestimate your resolve to tackle that challenge. Right. So there you go. That's my Newt Rockney, Rock, Rockney speech for the day. So I appreciate everybody listening. I hope this was helpful to everyone and we'll talk to you later.